isn't it the it's it's just it's the most I remember I remember a time somewhere it feels like two or three years ago when I thought to myself, I never imagined that all of the sports would cancel. And that was that was a moment so crazy that nothing else could top it. I I I joked that it was two or three years ago. It feels that way. It was honestly like, what, a week and a half ago at this point? It was maybe ten days ago. And it honestly it seems like it escalates well, I mean it obviously it does escalate every single day, but it is um I I have repeatedly told my children this is a moment like others in history where we have faced something seemingly insurmountable, and yet our historical record shows us that our country and our species is, in fact, well adapted to overcome moments like this. So in the whole, things will eventually be, quote unquote, okay again. They'll be normal again. But the other thing that history tells us is that we reorder society fundamentally to save ourselves from this exact same disaster again. I mean, that's what we did after World War II. You created this like international community of governing bodies that effectively stop us from having a world war. Uh, after the Depression, we changed the fundamental economic system in a bunch of different ways to stop that specific kind of collapse from ever happening, happening again. So we'll do that, and the next time we face a pandemic, we'll be much better at responding to it. But the other thing that generally happens is that we reorder society in other ways, too. So, like, after World War One, there was this huge movement, and suddenly women got the right to vote. I say suddenly. I mean, they'd been fighting for it for a long time, but it happened because of World War One. After World War II, there's a flourish of civil rights movement for African-Americans because they had been empowered during the war and came home and it was no longer enough to return to life, quote unquote, as normal. Uh and and likewise, there were white soldiers who had lived their lives thinking segregation was fine, and yet they were exposed to the bravery and the camaraderie and the humanity of African Americans during the war effort, and they were like, oh, we were wrong. You know, the minds were changed on both sides. There was a desire for more on the one side, and there was an understanding that more was deserved on the other side. I think those things will happen after this too, right? I think we as a society will come out and build a country and a world that's kinder and gentler and and more connected, honestly. But to do that, we all have to, or enough of us have to survive to build a society on the other side of it, right? That's my current worry. I am so thankful to see that the vast majority of people seem to be taking this seriously. I'm very thankful to see, I like, how countless governors and mayors are stepping up and providing really stable, secure, serious leadership in the middle of what is a, a trial that they never expected or thought was going to happen. Uh, and and in the midst of all of that, it, like people doing cool stuff, right? Like I shared, oh man, I shared on, so okay, literally, I'll just say the one that I did. We literally, the reason why we were starting this recording a little late is because uh, my son and I were downstairs uh, and well, upstairs at first, and then we moved downstairs. His cousin last night sent us a video of of him. This kid's like 12 years old. He put on as many T-shirts as he could, and he got all the way up to 41 T-shirts. And he, he's hanging out with his dad, and it's all of his T-shirts. And then I think he put on some of his dad's T-shirts as well. They got up to 41 before they quit last night. So he sent us this video. My wife and I were laughing and enjoying it. The kids all laughed at it this morning. It was awesome. 
And then Remy decides, hey, I'm going to do this too. So I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So he got 35 shirts in his own bedroom uh, from him and his brother. And then we moved downstairs to start mine. We got up to 60 shirts before he tapped out. He was like, I can't, I can't do anymore. <laughs> so there's a Facebook Live video. And as a matter of fact, uh, in the show notes for this episode, I will link that because if you are anything like us, maybe you need a good goof during all of this. Um, so having said all of that, that is our preamble on the state of the world as we record this March 22nd, uh, 2020. If you're listening to this in the future, here's your little reminder that once upon a time we were all coroned in our homes. Um, what a crazy time, man. What a crazy time. But we thought in this time now better than ever for us to finally do a damn episode. And so welcome to another episode of Articulate Coven. The Articulate Coven is the original, unofficial podcast and fan community for Anne Rice's Interview with the Vampire and Anne Rice's Immortal Universe from AMC and AMC+. Uh, we are your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Ashley. And we are the Articulate Coven. So we have discussed in this series of episodes lots of stuff. We've talked about uh, the first three books of the series, Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, and Queen of the Damned. We've talked about the films, Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned. We've talked about The Mummy, which is one of her side novels. Uh, and we've also discussed the Hulu announcement where we got picked up and we were going to be on Hulu with a new TV series. What we haven't discussed yet, uh, Ashley, we'll talk about it a little bit here. Hulu and their new corporate overlords, Disney, have passed on uh the vampire chronicles bastards yeah i'm i'm very bummed on this on the one hand on the flip side though production wouldn't likely have started like we probably would have gotten casting announcements let's say in an alternate world that they had kept it on on schedule we would have gotten casting announcements production probably wouldn't have started before everything shut down for the coronavirus so we just would have been teased and this thing would have been hanging out there further so i'm almost kind of glad that this project will start fresh when hollywood begins again uh, and yes, the other good true. news to think about in the wake of this sort of uh, cancellation, which is bad news, um, now, and you've seen it on the Facebook and, and Twitter accounts for the Vampire Chronicles, they've changed their headers. What uh, Christopher and Anne are shopping now is a full package of rights. They want to sell all of the books, not only the complete Vampire Chronicles, so the ones that cross over with the Witch uh, series, but also the Mayfair Witch series as well. And one would imagine that would even include, because these books cross over in some ways, the Mummy series as well. So theoretically, whatever media conglomerate ends up absorbing these rights down the road and deciding to give us this TV series that's percolating, it will now be not just a series, it'll be a TV universe. Which is awesome and excellent. And I think that there is so much fun crossover. And I remember, you know, just reading about, you know, and obviously we'll get more into this as we get into the book. But, you know, there's there's a couple of mentions of like Aaron Leitner in um, Tale of the Body Thief and Aaron... Aaron is a really important character in the uh, the Mayfair but the Mayfair books, and so I was like, oh yes, I totally forgot about Aaron. I completely forgot that that character existed, and it made me want to go pick up uh, the Witching Hour again. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. The thing that occurred to me while I was reading the tale while I was finishing Tale of the Body Thief, uh, which by the way I should say, 
you and I both, I think, switched up things this time as far as how we read it, right? I have been listening to these in audiobook fashion, but uh, I, I, and this was before the coronavirus, actually. My wife kind of challenged me. She is reading a lot of books this year, physical books, and also she's reading ebooks on her iPad. And I thought, you know, I want to do that too. We got a, uh, as a family, we have a Kindle Unlimited subscription right now through, uh, my, my mom bought it for my son who's got a Kindle Fire tablet and uh, the whole family's getting to benefit from it. And um, that's kind of awesome. So anyway, I was like, let me, let me borrow this thing from my library and let me read it, you know, the old fashioned way. It, it's really enjoyable. I liked it more than the audiobook, honestly. And I am already, I've started Memnock the Devil now, and I'm reading it that way as well. I'm reading it uh, in the Kindle ebook app on my iPad, uh, having borrowed it from my library's digital catalog, you know? And the cool thing with that is like, okay, so you get 14 days. Well, let's say you're kind of a slow reader, like lately I have been. Um, I just borrow it again. And the Kindle app holds any markers that I've made in it. It holds my progress so that when you borrow it again and load it back into the app, it's just you continue it like it was always there. Anyway, it's a very cool experience. And if you haven't tried that, but you now find yourself with a little bit more time to read or a more desire to read, load it up, man. See what your library is offering in a digital sense and and take advantage of it during this time. Um, Less, where do we want to start this conversation? I think... First of all, I'll say this. Um, as I wrap this up, the coronavirus was, in fact, ramping up, and we were beginning to feel like there was going to be some serious economic effects for us. I didn't really consider that we would actually, like, school would be canceled. I never thought it was going to get to that point at that, you know, a month ago. But this mortality idea was hanging over my head, and it's very interesting to read this book or think about this book particularly with some sort of crisis like this hanging over us. You know, it's it's interesting to weigh um, life and immortality when we're all thinking about death in a capacity like we are right now. Oh, for sure. It's like, it's a really timely read. And actually, guys, too, like this is a... a if you haven't read this one or if you haven't read it in a long time, like I hadn't picked this book up probably since... I mean, the like the very early 2000s. And um, so I haven't read it in like, I mean, almost 20 years, probably. And it's it's a really quick read. It's one of those that's kind of like, because it's not like setting up a huge, uh, it's not setting up a huge like a, a uh, mythos, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's kind of like the mummy. It's like a, a it's one story. It's this one adventure that we're going to go on. And so it reads really quick and it is, it, it's, it's very much about the question of mortality, the question of being, you know, the opportunity, if you are immortal, the opportunity to be mortal again. And if you're mortal, the opportunity to be immortal and what that, the questions that that, you know, the, questions of morality that that brings into play and it is it's a very interesting read right now and it's not a stressful read <laughs> like it's not gonna stress you out i will say trigger warnings there is a um there's a rape scene so just to give you a content warning a trigger warning for that um there's for those of you that haven't read it before or haven't read it in a while um that's definitely something that that is is in there so that could be a little a little triggering and upsetting for people so just to give you a warning about that but for the most part it's 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 a 
it's a really, you know, it's a fun adventure and it's an interesting introspective trip with these characters that don't always have a lot of introspection. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I have always loved this book. So my history with this one is it's my, it's the first book that I ever was brought to in the series. I found this book while I was visiting my aunt the summer before I turned 13. I think she lived in Baton Rouge at the time. It might, might've been Lake Charles instead, but she lived in South Louisiana somewhere. And, um, she was at work one day and I was kind of going through her uh, library there at the house and I found this one, pulled it out. It was the paperback copy and the prologue to this. And Anne does a good job. of She writes a similar prologue in effectively all of the vampire books after this. And I think there's a, a pretty similar prologue in Queen of the Damned as well. It just catches you up to speed. If you jump on at any time, she wants to tell you who Lestat is and explain this world that you're being brought into. And sometimes she gives you context. Like in this one, she Lestat specifically says, uh, you know, there's not going to be any, the world's not going to be at stake. This is a low stakes adventure story that you're going to hear here. Um, so he sets that up. But the other thing he sets up is his own power and some of the things that he's gone through and everything. And it's just incredibly seductive as somebody who has always been drawn to horror but is also a, a Frady cat. So I like it when you have a story that tells the from the point of view of the monsters because then it's not scary. If you're listening to the monster tell the t- tale, then the there are no jump scares, right? The jump right. scares are coming from you, so it's fine. Um and that, that's what I was specifically drawn to here. And I just was madly in love with it. I stopped reading at the end of the prologue, though, because it was clear to me there was more before this. So I waited until my aunt got home, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> and where is the rest <laughs> of it? And she was like, oh, oh, I love that series. The first one is Interview with the Vampire. And we went through her catalog, her library several times trying to find it. She turned out not to have a copy. She was like, well, you know, you could probably just jump on and read this one if you... I was like, no, 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 I got to start at the beginning. So I waited until we got back to my house and I went to the library like the first day I was home and I said, I need to borrow a copy of Interview with the Vampire. And when I took it to the desk, they wouldn't let me check it out because I had a children's card and it was an adult book. (laughs) So I went back out to the car or whoever was with me and I said we need to get me an adult library card and the next day my mom came in with me and we changed my account over and I got an adult library card and started reading grown-up books from that point forward and the reason that that all started is because of Interview with the Vampire and this prologue for Tale of the Body Thieves so I have always had a fondness for this story in the just as you put it Ashley the 20 years or so since I had read it uh and that was from the first time I read it to not this time, but the time before I went on a string where I read, uh, at least the first six or so of this series about 11 years ago. But before that, it had literally been since I was a child. The last time that I read it was the first time that the rape had really hit me reading it as a 12 year old. It, it seemed to be no different to any of the other horrible things that Lestat does. The fact that he was now immortal as well and committing this heinous, violent act against uh, a human being that he ostensibly loved in some fashion. That's how this whole thing started is he was kind of drawn to this woman and she was caring for him and took him home from the bar and his sort of stumbling mortality. 
And yet he, he or he would do violence to her, this terrible, terrible, grievous thing. As a 12-year-old, I didn't, especially a 12-year-old in the 90s, the early 90s, I didn't think about it. I just, it didn't weigh me down at all. 11 years ago, it weighed me down much more. This time, holy moly, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it stops yeah. the story in so many ways. Thinking about it being adapted as I'm reading it, I said, oh, they just, they'd cut this out. They, they This scene wouldn't happen. Maybe he would, maybe he would start to and then realize what he was doing. Like he'd fumble, tear a clothes off or something and then realize what he's doing and, and then race out of the apartment. And he'd still, that way you could still have the redemption at the end where he, you know, sends her money or whatever. But, uh, it, it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't make him horrible at the beginning of this tale. And yet, I think there's honestly, having read the whole thing again and really like sat with it, I think Anne stumbles through it. And I think that's mostly about the time uh, and the place where she was writing from. But I do think in a very, you know, gifted storyteller's hands, there could be an adaptation of this story that uses still that moment and that event but gives it the proper weight in the moment and then also brings that to a more fuller conclusion in the end and actually could add a lot to this story. Um, I don't, I'm not for, you know, fridging your girlfriends and stories. I'm not for uh, killing the gays, et cetera, et cetera, all of these tropes that we have. I'm not for just throwing a rape in there to show that things are serious. I think that's bad storytelling, but there are many th- parts of this story that are about consent, right? At its core, the idea of a body thief is about consent of consciousness and, and uh, you know, you're literally control of your soul. Um, so I think, again, in a, in a modern story, I, I said a more gifted, maybe that's the wrong way because I think Anne is an incredibly gifted storyteller, but in a, in a more modern viewpoint of a gifted right. storyteller. I think I mean, this could be done a, better. Yeah, we're talking about a book that was written, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of years ago. Like 30-ish and, now? Yeah. Right, yeah. And and I and I think that, uh, from my interpretation of reading it, I think that a lot of it was to draw parallels between between the act of 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 the kill, the act of, of the bloodlust that the vampires have. And this is, this is, almost to me it almost shows that Lestat inherently despite the fact that he is now in a human body he still has that lust in him he still has those cravings in him because it's part of it's part of inherently who he is now despite the fact that he is in a in a human body he is still a vampire he has still lived hundreds of years he is still he is still what he is and he is a monster and he is he is not a great person he's not a good guy and um and that's something we have to accept about our hero you know what i mean and i think that um i think that a lot of that is to i think it would have to be included i think it's important for it to be included if if you know in an ad- adaptation sense and i don't and i do think it's written in kind of a little bit of a, 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 a a little bit of a throwaway way. It's not the way she would write it now. I don't believe, you know what I mean? Um, but there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of scenes in these books that are, you know, 
aggressive sexually, you know, in whatever way a vampire can be sexual with a human or in whatever, you know, and, and, and you're right. Consent is a big part of this. I mean, we're going to run into that over and over again in this, in this story, in this story, in this adventure, because it's all, you know, do you want to, do you want to become a vampire? Am I going to make you one, even though you don't want to be one, you know, like that's, that's rape too, you know, like that's in, in another sense, in another way. And so there's a lot of different layers of, 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 of it in this book to me in particular. And I think that, um, and just thinking about the other novels as well and, and, and how, how you know i'm thinking about like there's just some really bizarrely sexual things coming up like in mimnock i remember there's some weird <laughs> there's some strange things that come up and i'm um, you know i think that there's just intentional parallels that she's drawing with vampirism and then and sex obviously and then and then you you put in the consent the consensual section of it and it's it's you know, admitting that these that these creatures are lawless in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I, effectively every time Lestat kills or drains, it's rape. Definitely, when he makes many of his fledglings, it was effectively rape. He himself is the product of rape. Magnus mm-hmm. never gave him a, gave him a choice. So, so yeah, I think I think that is a. I think it's a very strong theme that runs through the books, particularly this one, though. And so, yes, I I would like to see it, honestly, in an adaptation. I'm just, again, done through a, a more modern lens where the weight is. Honestly, it could be as simple as as the as he's committing the act. If he got a flash of Magnus forcing him, you know, yeah, once upon a absolutely. time, like just that simple. A realization, you know, like you know, a realization of the wrongdoing and the parallel being drawn, you know, like some, some self-awareness. Our, our boy Lestat always needs a little bit more self-awareness. Bless well, him. It, it's so weird too, because he has moments of it, right? Like even in chapter one, he says at one point, the evil of one murder is infinite. So like, <laughs> but it's, but it's interesting because he uses that very realization to sort of give himself carte blanche. Well, since Anyone is already as bad as I could possibly be. It doesn't matter how many I stack on top of it. Oh, for sure. I do love, I do love that he was on this like serial killer killing spree though. That is like, I didn't remember that at all from my, from my earlier reads. And I got really delighted by that as like a true crime aficionado and someone who likes a little, I don't know, sometimes enjoys a little vigilante justice. I really, really loved that he was like, I'm going to go hunt down these nasty ass serial killers it really read like uh dexter right like tonight's the night <laughs> like that's exactly yeah, how absolutely. it felt um so the the thing that struck that is an interest you're absolutely right the 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 one particular serial killer with the saintly daughter that he's uh chasing at the beginning of this book that is a particularly interesting subplot and again shows me the richness and the depth that this series could have if put to film you know if we if we get this in a long form tv series eventually and i'm confident that someday when things are back to normal we will uh somebody's going to want to put this on you know hulu is doing a lot now with fx i i would not be surprised if a retooled package of this showed up there uh or you know, Universal has a huge new streaming service that they're pushing uh, with NBC and, and Peacock. 
Um, HBO's got their own thing now with HBO, uh, not now, what are they calling it? HBO Max, uh, and they're bringing a, a whole bunch of things in-house there. This, pro- this uh, whole story has a history with Warner Brothers, so maybe we might see a return there. Or... Apple, you know, Apple now is making films and TV shows as well, and and they've got a lot of former HBO talent uh, working behind the scenes there in production companies and stuff. So I'm sure that somebody is going to see the value of this as an overarching narrative. The the thing that I was especially thinking of the other day, look at what um, Disney is doing with Star Wars. So the TV shows that they're making, and they've done this already for a while with their animated series. But now they're, they're moving it into the live-action stuff as well, it seems. They're, they're making these very specifically intended to be sort of short-lived individual series. Hey, we're going to have three seasons or four seasons, and we're telling one story, and then we're out. But then we're going to take those characters and pick up some of them with new characters, and the storyline overall will be continued in another series, maybe even with a different art direction or something. Uh, and, you know, we're going to jump from here to there and fill in the whole universe this content lends itself to that you could tell for instance this tale of the body thief could be your entry point to the story if you really if you wanted if you're not sure that people are going to buy into this whole universe of vampires and whatnot tell a one season 10 episode adventure story where a, a powerful vampire loses his body and then gains it back again with the help of his telepathic friend (laughs) <laughs> That's a pretty damn cool story, right? And you don't have to know anything about where the vampires come from or sad-ass Louis or, you know, angry-ass Marius. All of those can be hinted at. And then you could go do a whole season of Marius and Pandora in ancient Egypt and, and ancient Rome uh, taking care of those who must be kept Right? Like you could do a whole season of that that sort of feels like it's disconnected. You're not even paying Lestat except for two episodes maybe. You know, that actor takes a season off. And then you come back and tell the interview with the vampire story. Uh, yeah, you could do, you could do all of these. And then all of a sudden in the middle of that, you could do a whole season of the tales of the Telemasca where you're getting like literally like ancient uh, scribes writing the stories of their first dealings with the witches, you know, from 1500. And you could tell five or six different witches tales in individual episodes, make it like American horror story anthology style. I'm saying you could do all sorts of things with this and never actually commit to, we're going to make seven seasons and pay this one guy as Lestat a billion dollars to, to become famous. You know what I mean? And you could still do these stories just as Anyway, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I got my fingers crossed that in this time of us all sitting at home and taking a breather, that somebody's reading over these books and looking at these scripts that they've worked on so far and and making phone calls to Christopher and Ann and saying, let's make something happen. Uh, when we can all go back to work and we can put people back in studio, let's make something happen. That is the hope. And there are so many, like you said, there's so many different directions they can go in and, and so much freedom. If they buy the package... They've got all of it. You've got all the stories. So I think that with the way you're right and the way that people are thinking about telling stories these days, it's it's very much, you know, the the writers the writers are in control. The showrunners are in control of what of what they do and how they do it. You know, I'm thinking about shows like like The Good Place that choose to just do 13 episodes a season and do four seasons to tell their full story and like. There's no need to drag it out and make it longer than it needs to be, you know, and that 
there's just and and also you're not in a Game of Thrones type situation where you, the content's there. It's already there. You're not waiting for two books to come out and and you know that you need to finish the story without, you know, having a really really train wreck of a last season. So, I have hope too. I have big hope. I just We'll see. We'll keep our fingers crossed. And in the meantime, we'll keep reading. Thank God she's got lots of books. She's prolific. She does have lots of books. And speaking of, just for this show, I I think I can speak for Ashley here. I'm, I know I'm I'm already said it myself. I'm diving into Mimnock the Devil already. Uh, I want to produce more content for you. I'm going to try to read a bunch of these books this year. Um, and d- depending upon our work situation, maybe both of us can do that much more easily, Ashley. So <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll we'll try. Uh, to do what we can for you and try to uh, to get another episode out sooner rather than later. When we finish our discussion of Tale of the Body Thief, by the way, we've got some feedback from some of you from our Facebook group. We're going to talk about that at the end of this. Um, but let's let's jump in and, and dig into this. First and foremost, right. what do you think of the of the Body Thief character himself, James Ragland? Well, he's a he's a scamp, isn't he? My goodness, Lestat's such an idiot to fall for this to start with, like good grief like i it's such a scam it's such a scam it's such a scam but what a cool power you know like i'm very impressed with with the power that he has like that's and it's not anything that we've run into before in this world or actually i i haven't ever read a book where there's a body thief you know um he's his approach is very mysterious and he knows you know he's clearly been watching and paying attention to Lestat because he knows how to get him interested you know um so he's obviously smarter than I'd like to give him credit for um yeah well it was so clear to me like even when I read this the first time I was like okay he has to have gotten into those files about Lestat from the Talamasca if he like how else would he know that this is the vampire one of of all the vampires to approach how would he know that Lestat's the one yeah, bold ass knucklehead it. yeah that would go for this you know it's like oh god it's like when your you know grandmother calls you and said oh i was talking to the nice man from the irs today he told me if i had just sent him a check for 250 dollars they'd take care of my tax bill this year you're like oh grandma oh grandma yeah. what did you do yeah and you gave him his social your social security number great awesome awesome yeah I mean, yeah. and everybody, literally everyone that Lestat brings this to says it. Uh, David tells him, you've got to kill this creature immediately. Don't let him sp- say anything to you. Louis, Louis even says, destroy this this guy. Why, how are, why are you even weighing this at all? Can you imagine what he would do with your body if he got it? Even if he right. could do such a thing, think of the danger. Like, Yeah, you're talking about like giving just some like some random person like the keys to the nuclear weapons you know it's completely ridiculous of like clearly one of the most powerful vampires that there are that there is (laughs) i don't even know my i'm so perturbed with lestat right now my grammar is out the window um and i i can't think of a single other vampire who would even really remotely consider it except maybe pandora that would even remotely consider it you know, you know, that's a. I had not thought about Pandora, but you're right. Pandora's got this weird uh, history of of reincarnation, supposedly, and and uh, she right. was mortal twice, and all these things. And you you can imagine uh, I, the other the other one. And I know Louis says no to this, but I thought 
I don't think Raglan would have ever been successful at talking Louis into it. But I do think there's someone that had this ability. There was a way, there was an approach. There was a way, I think, that you could have pitched Louis and talked him out of his vampiric body uh, because Louis is so desperate for mortality. The difference, though, is Louis doesn't believe he deserves it. And Lestat is eternally in belief that nothing is ever his fault. So, like, well, he he feels damned on the one hand, but on the other hand, he his damnation is wrong. It's unjust in some fashion. Well, and Louis is Louis thinks of consequences. He thinks of what what the what the end result's going to be. Like that's something that's that's why he's the Eora of vampires. He's always thinking about, oh, well, this is what's going to happen. Pooh and Piglet, don't go on that adventure. You know, like that's why he's the Eora of vampires because he's always thinking about what could happen. He's like your killjoy friend. That's like, don't go do that. You know, so. He's that's why I think it would be hard to convince Louis of it because he would he could he could think about how irresponsible it would be to put his powers, even his powers, which are not, you know, are not what Lestats are, you know, putting them in a bot in the body of someone you don't know, the body of someone you don't trust, that you don't know what their what their behaviors are gonna be like. You don't know what they're gonna do in that body. You know, I, I, I don't think he would do it just because he would be concerned about like the danger it would be putting other people in. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, speaking of, I love, and he does it a lot in this book, Lestat straight up trashes Louis as far as like his status as a vampire so many times. I, the lowliest of vampires, this weak ass Louis, but I guess I'd take his blood over it. You know, if that's the only thing that I can get, at least he'll definitely, uh, he'll definitely help me out. I wish it was somebody stronger, you know. He gets mad at him and burns down his little house. What, oh, my geez, God. Like, jerk. straight up, uh, uh, what is it, um, waiting to exhale? Yeah, lights the house up as he walks away, man. Like, what the hell? That's so, he's so mean to Louis. I don't know why Louis puts up with his shit, frankly. Um, I, I really don't. <laughs> there's, a, there's a beautiful line that uh, Anne writes here when Lestat is considering Louis, though, as he's still making up his mind to go on this adventure. He says about Louis, he wears woe as others wear velvet. Sorrow flatters him like the light of candles. Tears become him like jewels. I'm like, man, that dude is hot, just so you know. Like, that dude, <laughs> even sad-ass Eora vampires, he is a smoky-eyed motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. He's beautiful. I love more than any other character in this book. And I knew, I remembered this being the case. I'm a little sad that he doesn't play as major a role in some of the more recent books. The character of David Talbot. Oh, um, yes. Good he, Lord, yes. He's so good in this. And I specifically was thinking to myself, who would you get to play him, especially in his mortal form, like the old man David Talbot, um, who who do you cast for this adventure if you're if you're making it a TV series and you'd need him you know a, a few appearances in the old in the last story and then he'd really get to shine in this one, um, you know like ever in in history I think about uh the way that uh, oh goodness uh Sir Alec Guinness looks in like Bridge on the River Kwai you know like uh little 
sweaty, uh, proper English gentleman uh, with a his backbone straight. Yeah, like I, uh huh. I like Lestat drools over him a lot in this book, and I'm there for it. Honestly, yeah, he's got to be like a like a little bit of a daddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, like that's. I mean, there are a lot, obviously, there are a lot of older guys at this point in Hollywood that would probably be great. But, I mean, I think about, I, the 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 actor's probably not right, but you think about the way his fan base treats him. Um, uh, it was Jeff Goldblum. Like. Oh, yeah. That energy, that's, that's kind of what I want, you know? Like, uh, he's not, I don't think he's the right age. And I don't think Patrick he would, Stewart. obviously he's not British, but yeah, I, I want like smoldering sex appeal honestly mm-hmm. from david in this yeah yeah because my instinct goes to like anthony hopkins but then i don't find him like sexy yeah so what was the, what was the movie that he made with uh cuba gooding jr it was like he played a some sort of like um he was a psychologist or something that had gone crazy like feral in some fashion i can't remember anyway there, there was a movie basically like his version of wolf with jack nicholson uh, that I, I could maybe get down on that. Um, you know, again, he's not old enough, but Mads Mikkelsen's version of Hannibal Lecter, that oh, kind yeah. of like, yes. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's what we want whenever Mr. Hollywood yeah. producer, Mrs. Hollywood producer, as you're listening to this, bring us a sexy David. <laughs> that's all we're asking. Yeah. We want, we want, we want a sexy, a sexy old man. Bring it. Bring me Patrick Stewart. Bring yeah, me the oh- captain. Yeah, okay, so like Patrick Stewart again is not exactly right, but yes, the way that he carries himself, the the confidence that he exudes, the regality, right? Like there's something about someone that is assured of themselves and their place in life and the universe and the choices they've made. Um that is sexy in and of itself. And David brings all of that to the table. Ooh, I believe ooh, maybe Sam Neill. Ooh. Oh, ma- yeah, I could get behind that. You Maybe might have to Sam age Neal. him up a little bit, but yeah, that would work. That would absolutely work. Yeah. Um, he says at one point, uh, no, this is not David that says this. I, now I can't remember who says this, but I love this quote. I dream the dreams of the young, he said, and they are always dreams of being older and richer and wiser and stronger. Don't you think? Uh, first of all, I think that's true. Uh, particularly when you're a child, it's all about, well, when I grow up, when I'm in charge, when I have a house of my own, uh, when I get to say what my bedtime is, when I get a car, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, always about being older and richer and wiser and stronger. And that concept, again, plays heavily into all of the themes of this book, and that is embodied very much in the person of David Talbot. David Talbot is on the cusp of literally mortality. Lestat talks about how frail his form is in some ways and how he worries that he might die at any moment. And it's one of the reasons why he begs him to become a vampire even in the beginning of the book, at the end of the last one, tempts him with the blood. And yet, also, the experiences that David has accumulated over the years, the the wealth of knowledge and wisdom and, again, life that he has accrued, that has its own quality and and draws especially Lestat to him, but it draws us to him as the reader as well. Yeah, he's a to me he's a, a fascinating character. I love I love that he's 
his, his wisdom. I really love his wisdom. I think that's one of the reasons why we why we find him sexy. I mean, obviously, we're also looking at him through Lestat's eyes, but he's wise and he's there's reassurance about him. There's something very um, comforting and he's wise and brave and, and not afraid to do the right thing, even if it's the wrong thing, if that makes sense, you know, and I, I like that even with the Telemasca, he's he's not afraid to go against the grain and, and go against tradition, even if it means that, you know, he's, I mean, he's definitely bucking tradition with, with them. And he is clearly in a lot of trouble with them off and on throughout this, this novel, you know? Uh, yeah. And I love him as our, I mean, again, I guess it's kind of cheating. Like Anne just writes herself these, oh, and Lestat's best friend happens to be the director general of the Talamascus. So he's got full access to all the powers of the organization and can override any of their decisions at any moment and can <laughs> send their wealth anywhere that he needs to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, at the same time, it's nice to get a deeper glimpse into them uh, if you've never read any of the the Mayfair witch books at this point, this is you know your deepest look into their organization and the way that they do business and where they come from and everything. And uh, it's nice to get that glimpse. And it wouldn't be nearly as good if this was just some staffer that had fallen in love with a stat and was along for the ride. You know, if it was Jesse, for instance. Right. Absolutely. And I love that it's not. I love that it's it's this. It's like it is. It's 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 a. He's a. What's the word I want to use? I mean, he's like a stalwart. He's been there for years and years and years, and he's not one that's like easily taken in by, you know, Lestat's charm and everything, but he is easily taken in by Lestat's charm. Yeah. And again, like sometimes, especially in this book, especially towards the end with David, you wonder what is it about Lestat that, that I mean, David should know better. David should know better about all of this, about, about giving in to Lestat at all, about... Um, maintaining this friendship, about helping him in this time of need, the whole nine yards, all of this is against David's best interests. And and when the ultimate thing that happens to David in this book happens, there's a big part of you, or at least there's a big part of me that was like, well, you got what was coming to you in some capacity. Like you dance with the devil and, and he's eventually going to burn your hands, you know? But like at the same time, it's a picture of us again as the reader, right? Lestat rapes a woman early in this book, and yet we don't throw him away as our hero. Over and over again in the series, he takes people against their will. He kills humans almost nightly in the early part of his life to survive, and yet we don't throw him away as a hero um, or as a protagonist. Why is that? It's because he is a darker version of the of the bad that we see in ourselves, right? I mean, that's the whole point of this series is that we weigh with we we wrestle with our own wrongdoing and our own understanding of ethics and, and morality and how we don't live up to it on any given day, you know? Well, and, and that's what, would you, the beauty of these two characters. For sure. And like, what would we do if we were in this position? You know, like what if, if we were an, an, an immortal being with this power, with all these powers and this strength, like what, what would our behavior be like? Which one of these, which one of these characters would we be more like? You know, those tend to be the characters that we that we kind of cling to and sort of relate to. Like I, Lestat, I want to slap about ninety percent of the time, but I still will go on a ride with him. You know what I mean? Like, and I guess maybe that makes me more like Louis than I like. <laughs> yeah, I think, but I, I think I think most of us are like that. We, we either are. 
we either are like Gabrielle, where like we're we would be independent and sort of like chiding, looking down on Lestat, but mostly try to avoid him so that we don't feel like slapping him. Or we'd be like Louis, following him around petulantly for the rest of our eternal lives, going, "Oh, why are you so bad? I love you so." <laughs> Why are you such a jerk? Why did you yeah. burn my house down? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about for a minute the other character that, um, again, I, I talked about how David Talbot being the the head of the Talamasca is sort of a, a writing cheat from Anne. Here's definite a, a writing cheat in my opinion. The perfect unassailable dog that she invents in the, in the person of Mojo. Uh, <laughs> so... So Mojo is, uh, first of all, Mojo is the, we we are led to believe anyway, that Mojo is the dog of the person who Raglan James has latest taken over the body of, right? That's not Raglan's uh, dog. It is the dog of whoever's house he's in at that moment, right? Right. Okay. Right. That's, 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 that's what I got I out of it too, because he doesn't like Raglan James. Yeah, he, yeah. But... <laughs> He not only recognizes Lestat, no matter what body he's wearing, <laughs> but but immediately is drawn to him just as much as we are as readers, and apparently has a telepathic bond with him like Chewie and Han. You know, they, they understand each other on some sub uh, subliminal level or something. But I love this. I love this gigantic devil dog. You know, everybody's afraid of him as Lestat walks with him. But also, he seems to walk with him unleashed everywhere they go, and and Mojo just follows him around. Um, I love the idea, and I honestly, I would love to see it played out as like a, um, a, you know, a scenario like Family Guy style. They talk about something, and then you just see it shown on the show. I don't think it would fit in a television show like The Vampire Chronicles. But Lestat imagines this scenario where he has this devil dog that guards his tomb at night in the cemetery, and that's such a badass idea. Like a vampire dog, that's amazing. <laughs> I, I I did not remember the dog at all from my previous readings. So when this dog shows up, I was like, what? What the hell's happening? And then I was delighted. It, it gave me this real um, one of those. Uh, it gave me this real John Wick feeling that I was enjoying. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I I love I love Mojo. I love that. I love that inclusion. I think it's hilarious. And it's another thing that gives Lestat like a, a feeling of humanity too. Like I have this amazing dog named Maggie who I could walk around with unleashed everywhere because she just follows me around like that. Like it it's. It draws those parallels. Like, he has a freaking pet. He's got a dog. Like, what's more human than that? Like, as he's exploring his own humanity and and what he wishes he could experience as a mortal, one of the first things he does is end up with a pet. (laughs) Absolutely. There's a a line. I don't believe that this is specifically about Mojo, but this is kind of the way that I felt about it. Uh, He says, so we reach into the raging chaos and we pluck some small glittering thing and we cling to it and tell ourselves that it has meaning and that the world is good and we are not evil and we will all go home in the end. And that is absolutely what Mojo is for Lestat in this book. It is a, it is an anchor to humanity. It, it is a validation of his choices in some ways. Mojo loves me even if no one else does. Mojo understands me even if no one else does. Um, and particularly in a book where he's actually haunted by Claudia, which is, again, you talk about you didn't remember Mojo. I did not remember Ghost Claudia at all. She shows up a bunch in this book, though. Oh, yeah. I know I did remember that because because 
Claudia is just a character that stayed has stayed with me like hardcore. Claudia from 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 reading interview the first time and and just like going on that journey with Louis and that heartbreak with Louis. Claudia has always really really stayed with me. And it's something that that's like him being haunted Lestat being haunted by Claudia is something that sort of let me forgive Lestat a little bit about what went down with her, I think. Like that knowing that that's like his guilt manifesting. That's like, you know, it's I mean, hell, we're it's it could be a real ghost, who knows? But like so much of it is is to me is his guilt and his and his grief, you know, manifesting. And and to me that's another a way, another way that he's humanized to us. Oh, absolutely. I think you're a hundred percent right that it's his own that's his own crap manifesting in the form of Claudia for himself. And, and, and I think that's it's telling because uh, there's a moment where he says, and, and again, this is another good line, and Claudia wasn't laughing anymore because Claudia was dead. Like he, and that's to me that right. he knows Claudia was never there. It was his own you know, understanding of what is actually right and wrong and what he's done that was tormenting him. But at that moment, he had to move past it because he had to get out of this stuff. You know, like the, he was under under the weight of his dawning realization that he had been, um, you know, he'd had his body stolen. Um, I didn't make a, not a, a lot of notes about her, but let's talk for a moment about the nun in his... First of all, he hates mortality. He gets the he gets this body. He gets a human body from Raglan. They switch even though everybody in his life has told him it's a terrible idea. He runs headlong into it after he makes, and, and by the, these loopholes that he draws, oh, we're only going to do it for two days and you got to show up in person on a Friday or you're never going to get the money and surely that'll mean that you'll show. He's like, the whole time I'm like, you imbecile. There are like 19 different ways that he can get out of this and still get most of your damn money anyway. But also, if he's got your body, why does he need your money? He'll just go get more money. Like, uh, anyway... I was exactly. very disappointed in Lestat the whole time as as this happens. But once he switches bodies, he almost immediately gets sick, even before the rape. The reason why he sort of stumbles through that whole experience as he goes to the restaurant, he, he doesn't have any money on him. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's, he's running out into the cold and, and catching his death, you know. And then he literally spends the rest of what would be his vacation as a mortal uh, incredibly ill, like deathly ill in the end. Which brings us to the character of the nun. Can I real quick before yes, before we hit that? Um, do you think that that body was ill to start with? Like that that he that that Raglan picked that body on purpose. So like maybe his intention was that Lestat would die in that body. I like wondered kind of- if, and I I wonder. Uh, I haven't looked into. Um, like I haven't done a, a good job of like doing uh, deep research on this to see if maybe anybody has, maybe there's an interview somewhere with like a rough draft of this story. But it occurs to me that there might have been a storyline where the body might have been an HIV uh, infected person. I thought about, there were several hints to me that implied that there was a compromised immune system. And then maybe he already had pneumonia or something like that, which was going to be the the death of him and there's not nothing there is overt there's not even like a side plot where any of that is really referenced so i it i think maybe 
some of that might have been there. And again, maybe it wasn't, it, maybe it was never overtly about HIV or AIDS, but I do think there was some sort of illness there that was an original draft of the story, maybe, and it mostly got glossed over in whatever the final version that we have here. But yes, I, I took that. I, I feel like there are hints of that in the story, but it's so subtle that I feel like it, it maybe it wasn't meant to be there in whatever version we are now reading. That was the way that yeah, I kind of took it. That could totally make sense. I, yeah, I just had this, like, to me, that would be, if you wanted to keep that vampire body, that would be the smart thing to do. Like, give him a body that he's going to die in over the next week, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because then it's, he's only, he's got a, literally a ticking time bomb to to find you at all, you know? Right. It, it, so... I don't know. That, On to the nuns, I hadn't considered sorry. that specifically. <laughs> no, no. I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm actually it's funny, I was going to um I'm jumping into my copy of the Alpha the uh Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles Alphabetary, and I was gonna pull up the uh the entry for Gabrielle. Um not Gabrielle, what what was the nun's name? Oh god, hang on. Is it in my notes? It's not in my notes. Gretchen. Gretchen, that's Gretchen. what it is. Yeah, I found her. I knew it was a G. So, so this in, in the alphabetary, it specifically says he's suffering from pneumonia after Raglan James, the body thief steals the stats vampire body, uh, and Raglan James mortal body begins suffering pneumonia, which by the way, I'm going to give a plug here for, so this book, the alphabetary is, uh, by Beckett, which I don't think he's actually working for Anne anymore, but Beckett was a longtime personal assistant for Anne and he compiled this from her notes and with her, uh, help and approval. The biggest thing, and I think I've said this in the past on this show, the biggest thing from the alphabetary that you should take away is the prologue where Anne describes her fictional worlds. I I don't think I've spoken about this specifically on the show, and Ashley, I'm pretty sure I have not spoken to you about it uh, directly. It's fascinating stuff. If you've never heard about this, she has... In her mind, since she was a child, created not one but multiple complete fantasy worlds. On top of the Vampire Chronicles world that she's produced in text, I think she's got three that she manages on an ongoing basis in her mind, and she describes them in full detail. And I'm talking about she knows generations worth of details about these people's history. Some of it she's written down in diaries and things. Some of it she just literally holds in her head. But the way that she describes these creations makes you understand how she can create such fully formed characters and why this world uh, of the vampires is so compelling. I think the the fabric of it is really fleshed out for me in a, in a real way by the opening of this alphabetary book. But anyway, it also says here that Raglan James' mortal body is suffering from pneumonia. Uh, in the hospital, he's cared for by Gretchen, a Roman Catholic nun who is experiencing a crisis of faith. This story of Gretchen, I thought, was really, really cool. First of all, do you know any nuns in your personal life, Ashley, or former nuns? Um, you know, I not 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 really now. Um, I knew some I knew some nuns when I was younger. When I was a a child. There were some actually some pretty badass nuns in Hot Springs, Arkansas, that um, some of them got excommunicated from the church a few years ago for um, it had to do with uh, uh, communicating with Mary. Some of them, a few of them, had had they thought communication from from Mary, and apparently nuns aren't 
supposed to have those kinds of experiences and they ended up getting like excommunicated just a little little side little side story there but no i'm not you know i'm not catholic i wasn't raised i actually wasn't raised with any sort of organized religion which is pretty interesting um just an interesting tidbit about me um so i don't have a lot of experience with nuns but my brother went to a daycare run by nuns for a while so I, uh, I'm not Catholic either, and I, I did not know almost any nuns growing up, but in my college life and since, I've met several people who were former nuns who left the, um, I guess they left the, their, that, their mission, uh, you know, they stopped being nuns for one reason or another, uh, one of them for love, one of them because they had a crisis of faith like Gretchen, one of them because she felt a, a mission to move home and be more involved with their family and community and, and minister in a personal way. Uh, she still kind of considers herself married to the church. She's just not wearing a habit and, and working at the convent anymore. But this idea of a nun on a, you know, rumspringer sort of basically like, uh, like, <laughs> like the Amish get to do when they come of age, you know, the, the, the Amish populations, they have this, uh, concept that when a child comes of age, when a, a young man or woman comes of age, they get to go out and experience the English world, go out and experience the regular world for a while and decide whether their faith and culture is something that they want to continue or whether they want to join the world at large. And it feels like that's what this is for Gretchen, right? So like, she's like, I'm at a point in my life where, I, I'm going to recommit in a way that basically will mean the rest of my life. And yet I feel like I'm missing this physical connection, this romance. I don't even know what it is. Let me get out into the world to experience it. And then she sort of has cold feet until she meets Lestat. It's really, it's really a beautiful story, honestly, especially in comparison to his first fumbling attempts and, and, and the rape of this poor waitress, you know? Yeah, it is. It's, um, it is interesting. I I find um, I find like I always find when someone's having a, a crisis of faith. I find those very very sensitive uh, situations personally because I think that um, even as someone again who who does not practice any organized religion, I think faith is faith is a different thing, and faith is uh, faith is. Um, the worst thing I can imagine is is a loss of faith, you know, even even though mine is not necessarily the same sort of thing that most people experience that go to church and things like that. When I see someone who who has so much so much belief and faith and then they have then they have a stumbling with it or have a struggle with it, that internal struggle to me is so is so great and and heartbreaking on so many levels, regardless of what the end result is. I think that having to question something like that you believe in so stringently that that means so much to you that is that is what brings you comfort that what is what brings you that is what gives you comfort about what the end of your life is going to be like things like that like to lose to lose that is is one of the most is I think one of the most heartbreaking things a person can experience. Um, and no matter how you come out of it, whether you come out of it with the faith renewed or you come out of it with a different perspective where you've let the religious thing go and, and it turns into something different and you look at the world differently, um, that, that crisis is, is, is in, in and of itself one of the most heartbreaking things I think a person can deal with. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's, again, like what a rich... What a rich story. What a 
to have that as just a subplot, right? Like Gretchen's not a large part of this book, and yet she brings so much color to it, particularly when you get to the end of her story, after Lestat recovers his body and he, he returns to show himself to her, the fact that that is a further crisis of faith that causes her to turn away from the world completely. She, Which, again, you want to talk about something subtle. Does she receive the stigmata or does she cut her hands in the form of the stigmata? I think she cuts her hands, but that's I, just me. <laughs> I thought she did too. I thought she did too. And yet it's, it's not clear. Like it, it's not, it was late. I read it three times and I was like, what does Anne want us to take away from this? I don't. But, I but, kind of took it as like a self, like almost like a self self mutilation. Yes, self self flagellation. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. like literally, like with the lash and the whatnot, or or stepping on the nail right. shoes or something. Yes, yes, that's right. that's that's what I took away from it as well. But again, I feel like she could have made that more clear. In, in if it had been an actual like miraculous stigmata appearance, I feel like. Uh, Lestat would have responded to it in some way, particularly because Lestat also is having a crisis of faith here. There's there's the discussion with David of God and the devil in the very beginning of this book. All throughout oh, yeah. the book, Lestat is, um, even the first appearances of the body thief, they play very much like the first appearances of Mimnock in Mimnock the Devil. I've, I've, as I said, I've started to read right. that. And the first things that happen is Lestat feels himself being watched. He's just, there's a presence around, which is exactly how Raglan James first is shows himself. It's just a mortal in the crowd that notices Lestat and is watching him. And Lestat can see it, and then he's kind of gone again. Um, what, what, anyway, so thick. Her writing is just so fraught. And here, we've talked about this several times, I feel like the later stories that she tells uh, are clearly percolating in her subconscious already. And she's sowing seeds for future adventures, even as she's going through this. Um, oh, this, Gretchen's this story, book though, sets up Mimnock quite a bit. Like, I feel like this book definitely is, is setting up, is setting up Mimnock for sure in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. A ton, a ton. The, the, but see, and we've talked so many times about in once we get this adapted into a, a television series, what a wonderful role Gretchen is. And it's literally going to be like you're you're committing to maybe three episodes total, you know, right. um, you can be in and out. And yet that's the kind of thing that somebody's going to win a supporting actress uh, Emmy for if, if the series is what we want it to be. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, OK, let's talk a little bit about the resolution, uh, how they actually come up with. Uh, David and, and Lestat together, which, by the way, how much of a sigh of relief did you breathe when when David finally shows up to help him? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I love that it's like now it's going to be a, a, a heist on a cruise ship. Like we're on a boat and it's a heist. No, no, no. It's just I love it. I, I, I love that it um, that it. I love how this book just it's a, it's a rollicking adventure. It's so much fun, and yeah, Lestat's been on his own for so long, so it's it's amazing when he when the cavalry shows up and he gets some help. Yeah, and uh, and David is so calm, cool, and collected through all of it too. Like he's just we're forging ahead, and here's the plan, and here's how we're going to get him, and here's how we can track him down, and and I'll call my man, and he'll put the guns in the cabin, and everything is set. You know, um, 
I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Particularly because the one time that he is at all unnerved or rattled is when Lestat straight up comes on to him. He's like, you know, David, we could get it a little bone in right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he's like, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I love, so there's a line here, uh, uh, Lestat in the body of Raglan James has just gotten out of the shower, and he says, I realize I had stripped off all the garments and was standing there naked, and this had produced in him, David Talbot, a strange reticence and a near blush to his face. Here, dry socks, he said. Don't you know better than to go about in soaking wet garments? I'm Like, how very British of him. He's standing there looking at his penis, trying not to just jump this young man, and he goes... Dry socks. <laughs> yep, that's what you need right now. Lieutenant Dan says so. Um, I I love all of that. I love the fact that Lestat comes on to him over and over again. I love the fact too that David puts it away. It's it's kind of like a it's kind of a bummer after the fact that they never got to try that out since now they're sort of companions in vampirism and vampires don't really do that. But at the same time, it makes sense because. David is about business at this point. No, there's a crisis, Lestat. Right. <laughs> we have to take it seriously. Right, have got work to do. Like, it's, this is not time, time, this is not horny time, this is work time. Um, What did you think of the of the actual plan and the resolution? I've, I've felt like, even knowing the power that Lestat has, I felt like Anne lines it up pretty well. She establishes that Raglan doesn't have full control of the body or his powers, and then she lays out their their plan in a in a way that... I, to me, it made sense. I felt like, yeah, I think they can do this. And then and then when they are able to pull it off, especially with the slight you know, change in plans that happens at the very end, I think it made total sense. It was very satisfying as a conclusion. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Like I and it, it to me, this this book reads like like the mummy did, you know, like it feels just like especially like the last probably the last quarter of it it just it is all like it is all kind of adventure time it's like it's a and it, it is a heist it's like the heist is it's not for jewels it's for it's to get this body back the heist is for the vampire body and i i do i love it i think it's it was a it was such a fun read and i i tore through that book i really tore through that book fast i mean i finished it I really read that over in like two days over the course of two days. And, um, and that last quarter of it, I probably, I probably finished that in like an hour. Um, I just, I loved, I loved it. It was just really fun. And you just don't always, these books don't always give us fun. And so when you get, when you get it, it, it's like twice as much fun as it should be, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know what you're saying. The, uh, there's a there's a good line from uh, David. Uh, Lestat asks him after Lestat has turned him and David has accepted him back. He says, why do you love me? I asked. And David says, you know, you've always known. I wish I could be you. I wish I could know the joy, you know, all the time. And Lestat asks, and the pain? You want that as well? And David answers, your pain? He smiled. Certainly. I'll take your brand of pain anytime, as they say. And I think that we talked earlier about why we love Lestat in spite of, you know, the fiend that he is. I think that's why. I think we all, we know our own tortured souls. And even though Lestat is a picture of that in some ways, and he longs for redemption and he longs to be good and to be an instrument of good, even though he is at his heart kind of a, a dark creature, 
none of us are killers like Lestat. We also don't arise to the good that he could bring about in the world because we're not, you know, superheroes like he is at times in these books. And so that's what we love him. We love him for the joy that he has and the powers that he holds. And we also love him for the way that he deals with his pain. The suffering that he has is a slight glimpse of our own. And so it's like, yeah, I'd take your brand of pain any day, buddy. Yeah, the torturing. Yeah, I I don't feel like Lestat's. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't really know how to phrase what I wanted to say. I just I think that I think that some of his suffering is is superficial. If that makes sense. Mm. Mm. In yeah, a way. it's for show. It's for show. Yeah, in a way. yes, it's he's, for show. Yeah. He he so it's he like, knows that we expect him to recognize that he's evil. And so he plays as if he recognizes that he's evil and feels bad about it. And so the suffering that he feels is, is probably not the same as the suffering that like we're all feeling right now with like the, the what's going on in the world. We don't really know what's happening. What's going to happen day to day right now. And that stress and, and that like, okay, I will take, um, I feel bad because I have to eat people sometimes. <laughs> I don't <Yeah>. know. <laughs> No, absolutely. A hundred percent. Which is again why. Okay. So we talked about the, the rape scene at the early part of this book where he, he Lestat forces the waitress in human form. The book ends and he tells him he's going to do it. Right. He tells David effectively that he's coming for him. And then he kind of gives him a while to live in his mortal body. And then he just goes and does it anyway. Um, and he takes David and forces him to become a vampire at the end of which David ends up forgiving him for because, like us, we, we you know, you can't help but love Lestat in some way. But here, this is again why I think in an adaptation of this, you would need to address the rape at the beginning of the story because the conclusion of the story is a rape of David. It's a rape that right. David ends up forgiving Lestat for and maybe in the end he would have asked for the blood anyway but that doesn't forgive what Lestat's done it doesn't change it it doesn't stop it from being part of his character so I think a storyteller that lays this out in in cinematic fashion or for for television I think you're gonna have to wrestle with that and and make those sort of balances of the arc um this is a deeply flawed and and terrible protagonist we have here that we've fallen in love with and those two events are part of who he is they're part of this this broader narrative so anyway it's it's very it's very telling and challenging to me this whole story and as you said it's so much lighter than so many of the other books and yet here are these two massive events that take place in the lives of our characters um that sort of you know bookend the the arc yep for sure for sure i mean there is there's some really the 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 darkness in this in this book is deep but but the um but again like like listat says this is not this isn't the world isn't going to end in this book you know um so the stakes the general stakes are not as high in it which is i think make it make it a little bit of an easier read as far as like, as far as from, from just from a reading perspective, from a reader's perspective. Nobody's, um, nobody's going to visit the, uh, the crucifixion spoiler warning as they do in the next book. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The next one is, is a lot 
it's a lot. The next one's a lot. It's so much. And I, oh, and Ashley, I keep thinking there are parts of the next book which I have not read since I've read the 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 current uh, you know two or three books that she's written. There are parts of this next book that are colored by some of the events in the most recent books, the Prince Lestat novels, and I'm so interested to hear you unfold this all as we continue on through the end of the series. I am really excited to see um, your reactions to this and I, and honestly our listeners reactions as well. Speaking of uh, if you don't have any other thoughts on the book, uh, Ashley, why don't we move to feedback? Are you ready for that? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Nicholas, which by the way, there's a Facebook group. There'll be a link in the show notes for us. Uh, You can find us there, but join us if you are a fan of the books. If you find, found this podcast recently, join us in the Facebook group. Uh, Feel free to start conversations there while we're all waiting and tell us what you think of the show as well. Of course, this is from Nicholas Danielson. Uh, He goes, Ooh boy, here's a long one. Um, Thanks for the shout out. First of all, (laughs) we mentioned him in uh, one of our previous episodes. And most of this is about our discussion of the Queen of the Damned. He says, Joel, I would argue that Anne Rice was very deliberate in the creation of Akasha's immaturity. We had talked about what a child she is as a leader, especially, or, or as a ruler. Uh, right. He says, I think Cayman says it best when he says that vampires don't really change. They only become more themselves. Akasha was, in mortality, a spoiled princess and later queen with lots of power, but none of the moral or spiritual insight necessary to respect or wield that power properly. To her, everything must have have a grand purpose because whenever she looks closer at the details, she realizes that whatever she does might not be so significant as she thought. So she makes these grand, sweeping, but simple plans. Consider also how Cayman muses and Akasha describes that the queen spent millennia in a torpor, overwhelmed and losing herself in the billions of voices that come to her through the mind gift until Lestat manages to send a signal through the noise. This suggests to me that her plan is simple and juvenile mainly because she was already ill-disposed to handle the messy details of the world, compounded by whatever distancing and disassociative measures she had to take to save whatever sliver of sanity that she might have had left. In Blood and Gold, which comes up later, Marius even muses that Akasha that woke was perhaps mindless, like an AI only able to act on certain elements uh, for a certain for a sentient being, at least, maybe effectively she was brain damaged, is what um, Marius muses uh, as a possibility. Very limited directors, basically hardwired into her brain. He thought that it wasn't the full Akasha that woke up. Akasha remains compelling to me even as an adult. When I first read Queen of the Damned in my teens, I had a really hard time coming up with a good counter argument against her plan, except that, you know, killing people equals bad. As an adult, I look at her and I find that she's such an excellent example of the banality of evil. Uh, he doesn't make the comparison, but I think we did. She's a, Her plan's a lot like Thanos's from the Avengers movie recently. Right. Um, that people are looking for simple, drastic solutions are the ones who are ultimately... Uh, either are monsters or they create the monsters, those people that are looking for simple and drastic solutions, something that is deeply relevant in today's political climate especially. But yes, I agree. As a character, she is simple, juvenile, and if she wasn't a vampire, she'd be the goddamn mean girl drama llama of your otherwise varied and wonderful (laughs) social group. She's just a bully writ large. She's, you know, she's Hitler in that way, effectively. She, he's just a, a, a school ground bully, a schoolyard bully, except he had a lot of power. And that's exactly what, what uh, Akasha is as well. Um, I like that, though. He's, 
And he's right. I don't. We, when we say that 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 character is simple and we don't really like her, I I think he's absolutely right in that it was on purpose and that Anne is making a statement there on a certain kind of leadership. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. And it's uh, to draw those parallels. I think uh, between what we're <laughs> what we see around us today is is very wise as well. I mean, it is. It uh, yes. Those are some really great observations. So uh, here's another one. This is from Christina Alina Pervin. She says, first of all, I agree. Queen of the Damned is a train wreck of a movie. But since you guys (laughs) reread the book recently for your previous episode, there were a few things you missed. Uh, We mentioned uh, in one of the final scenes with all of the vampires that aren't actually named in the movie, but we can read the credits and figure out who they are. She says, why would Mayel touch Jesse instead of Cayman? Because he was in love with her. In the in the book, he was in love with her to the point of making flower vases break with his mind gift because he couldn't control himself around with her. And she uh, reads a quote here. She had, in fact, turned around from him to stare at the bowl of flowers in the middle of the table. Old tea roses falling to pieces amidst the baby's breath and fern and purple zinnias. Then the bowl broke into pieces and the water went everywhere. And Mayel had said quietly, quite sincerely, oh, forgive me, I didn't mean to do that. Um, or going to a concert hall to protect her and thinking obsessively about her when he knows many others may be able to read his thoughts. Cayman closed his eyes to shut this out. Then he heard it again suddenly. Jessica, my Jessica. Cayman studied the creature even more intently, probing even deeper, but all he caught now was the fierce protectiveness. Rescue Jessica, not merely from the danger of the mother, but from this place altogether, where Jesse's eyes would see that no one could ever explain away. Where Jesse's eyes could see what no one could ever explain away. Um, so this is a little thing that she says, Christina says, this is a little thing that the movie gets right. Maybe I can only take your word for it. I don't have the mental fortitude to rewatch it again, nor can I turn it into a drinking game. Uh, but she says that we mentioned (laughs) that strange, um, interaction. She says, it makes sense. That's something they actually got right from the movie. They just didn't explain it in the, or got right from the book. They just didn't explain it from the movie. She also says the, the guy who rescues Marius alongside Pandora is Santino. Remember him? Poor character. Everyone seems to hate him. I don't know. It just irked me. (laughs) So thank you for those corrections. And you're absolutely right. But again, that's an example of like, I mean, we talked about it when we talked about the movie. It seems like that movie was written like during a writer's strike or something, right? Like they got half the script and then they were like, we just got to shoot it. Come on, let's go. (laughs) Yeah. Good luck. (laughs) Yeah. That that, that script's a mess. It's a mess. I I mean, I, I, I can't, I won't defend it. (laughs) yeah me neither honestly um if you have feedback on any of these books any of the movies or what we're doing with the podcast or honestly if you want to tell us about what you're doing as far as what you're rereading or reading for the first time during this uh weird time in our uh, society our global culture here as as we were recording this ashley i just got a text from my wife that uh our governor for the state of louisiana has issued a uh, shelter in place starting I think Monday, technically. No, it begins tomorrow at 5 p.m. Yeah, today's Sunday. So tomorrow at 5 p.m., but he would really like us to start doing it ASAP. Um, so there you go. Louisiana is sheltering in place here on March 22nd. Um, 
I am glad that we got together for this discussion. It makes me feel better. We're going to both dive into Memnock the Devil and try to have another episode for you before too long. But in the meantime, continue that conversation. Get on Facebook. Join us there and chat with us about these books and these movies and this potential TV series down the road. Let us know what you're doing to uh, keep sane during this time. Hopefully not eating people. But other than that, <laughs> social right? you can't eat people because social distancing. So Social don't distancing, even, guys social distancing yeah it, it does make me wonder so there's uh again a little hint at some of the things that happen later in the books there are some vampires who are uh you know top level doctors and there ends up being like this vampire medicine thing that happens in the princeless stat books and i have thought many times boy i'd like some vampire doctors working on this damn coronavirus <laughs> you know that's not a bad idea i haven't so that for those of you that don't know i have not I'm not up to date on the newer books. So when Joel says he's excited to like kind of watch me make these connections, it's literally because I haven't read them yet. And so it's going to be, we're going to be like, I'm going to be discovering it as we go along. Cause I've kind of committed to not reading ahead yet. So, um, so yeah, so I'll get to experience that want and need as we go along. So those of you that are behind, don't feel bad. I'm behind too. No, absolutely. Um, join join in and, and read them, read along with us as we go. Uh, so we've wrapped up Tale of the Body Thief now. The next one is obviously Memnock the Devil. And uh, chronologically, if we were going to do them in, in order of release, we would get into the witching hour after that. But I, I think probably uh, we'll plow ahead and continue with uh, the Vampire Chronicles straight through. There are some really interesting and shorter books. The Vampire Armand and Vittorio the Vampire and Pandora comes out. And then I you got like Blood Pandora. and Gold. So there's some really good ones in there that I would I would definitely like to get to ASAP. So we'll see how it goes. But right now your homework is Memnock the Devil. Let's get to that. And yes. uh, to join the Facebook group, if not there, and tell us what's happening in your world if you are. Ashley, thanks so much for making some time with me during this craziness. Absolutely. This was fun. All right. Until we return again, we are the Articulate Coven. We've been your hosts. I'm Joel. I'm Ashley. And we are the Articulate Coven. Thanks for listening to the Articulate Coven. You can join our community on Facebook by following the links in the show notes or searching for Articulate Coven on Facebook. You can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at ArticulateCoven.com and share us with your Anne Rice-loving friends. <laughs>